when he was born, he was limp and there was a weird gurgling sound about him. He was very quickly whisked off my chest onto the resus table. I started to hemorrhage. Two foot two had me responding code one. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. I'm thinking, no, I can't do this, what have I hemorrhage? And again, they said to me, no, no, those planes are ICU on wings. If it happens, you will be fine. When your baby is born, there's one thing, more than anything, you want to do. You want to hold this precious tiny person safely in your arms. The moment their skin touches yours, there's this rush of emotion as you start to bond. Relief, disbelief, joy, wonder and love. You want to protect them from anything and everything. But when Gemma Manwaring held her newborn baby, Zach, for the first time, she felt fear. She knew immediately that something was wrong. The next seven days were harrowing and this story will touch the hearts of so many parents around the country. Welcome, Gemma. Thanks, Lana. How did you come to move from Brisbane to the small township of Biloela in central Queensland? So I am a teacher and I spent a few years teaching on the Gold Coast and wanted a permanent position, which they're hard to come by for teachers at the moment um, and were many years ago. And I was lucky enough to be offered a permanent position with the Rockhampton Catholic Education Office um, and ended up in Biloela. Can you tell me a little bit about Biloela? Because it's a fairly small little community, isn't it? It is. It's an amazing community. I love Biloela. It's vibrant. It's fun. There's always something to do on the weekends. And it's so welcoming. So welcoming. I just felt so loved from when I arrived there. You were teaching there in prep. What excites you about teaching? Oh, no day is the same. No day is the same. And just the innocence of the children. They're just so innocent and everything is magic. It's it's lovely. And I think above all, I love being part of the journey with a child where they achieve something and they know that they've achieved it. And that moment where they look at you and they know that they did it. And I've been there to coach them as part of that. And that's just amazing. I love that. So how did you come to meet your now husband? Uh, we actually met online. Uh, in while I was working in Biloela and he was from Gladstone at the time but um, which isn't far from Biloela it's only about an hour and a half and so your location settings are a bit different I hadn't used any sort of online dating in the city uh, but location settings are just a little bit different when you're in the country because you know there's not a lot near many places so we just opened up settings a little bit and we got chatting online and met one weekend and the rest is history. What's his name? Shane is my husband. And what does he do? He's a boilermaker. So he works in a lot of the industry in Gladstone. So then as your relationship developed, you decided to move to Gladstone. Yes. Yeah. Very quickly things progressed with us, which is just the way it went. And neither of us questioned it. We hadn't been together very long when he asked when I was moving to Gladstone and I said, well, I hadn't thought about doing that just yet. I thought I'd do a few years in Billow 
And so I spoke with my boss and I filled out the appropriate paperwork for applying for a transfer. I remember I was called in to the principal's office when he told me that I got the transfer and he said, oh, I've got a transfer for you, but it's not in Gladstone. And so the Rockhampton Diocese is huge. It goes from Bundaberg up to Mackay and then right out to Longreach. It's just huge. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they're sending me to Longreach. And he said, oh, it's in Tannum Sands, which is only 20 minutes from Gladstone. And I said, yeah, that's okay. And he said, oh, but it's Tannum Sands. It's not in Gladstone. I said, it's 20 minutes. It doesn't matter. It's fine. And when I was working on the Gold Coast, I traveled 45 minutes one way to work. So 20 minutes was nothing. And so he was really worried I wouldn't be happy, but I was thrilled with the offer. So that was lovely. That's great. So then you move out to Gladstone and are you married at that point or? No, we're engaged and planning our wedding. We had a backyard wedding in 2016 and we had decided once we were married, we were going to start trying for a family. And did that happen quickly? It did. It felt like a lifetime. It was four months um, that we (laughs) eagerly, eagerly waited for a positive pregnancy test. And of course, the month when I thought it wasn't going to happen and hadn't thought about it much, that's when it happened. So that was a bit amazing. Tell me about the birth of Maxie because she was um, born a beautiful, healthy baby, but that birth really gave you a challenge. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, the birth itself was all very calm and textbook, I suppose you could say. Uh, Soon after she was born, she was put on my chest for lovely cuddles and my midwife noticed that I was trickling blood a little bit faster than what they would have liked. They then noticed that my bladder was quite full and so just asked me to go to the toilet and sometimes just, you know, releasing that fluid can just help sort everything out. And midwives are just such amazing people. They know all of the tips and tricks just to try this or that, you know, as as a way, as an early intervention before anything too medical needs to be done, I suppose you could say. And as I was on the toilet, I thought, no, this something's not right. And I called for one of the midwives and said, I I don't think this is we, I think this is something else. And with that, she called an emergency and I was actually hemorrhaging on the toilet. And so they um, got me back on the bed and and sorted me out with lots of um, compressions on my uterus. And there was a a drug, Sintocin, that they gave me just to help contract my uterus to stop the bleeding. So postpartum hemorrhaging is when a woman has heavy bleeding after giving birth, it's a serious, but it's a rare condition, luckily. Yes. Uh, usually happens within a day of giving birth, or sometimes it can be up to 12 weeks afterwards. But And it impacts, I think, about 1% to 5% of women um, after they've given birth to a child. And it can lead to shock and death if it's not treated. So it's fairly scary. Yes. My understanding is that treatments for postpartum hemorrhage can include massaging the uterus to help the placenta to be delivered, obviously giving medication and sometimes blood transfusions. Um, And if the bleeding can't be controlled, then surgery may be required to have the placenta or any remaining tissue removed um, or to have, if there's been an injury, have the injury that's causing the bleeding repaired. Or sometimes the only way to stop the bleeding and save the life of, of the woman is to remove the uterus. So what were the treatments that you were given when it was realized that you did have postpartum hemorrhaging? Yeah, so with that, the placenta coming out is sometimes enough to send the message to the uterus to start to contract again. And so we started with a um, 
I think it was a medically assisted third stage, which is where they give you an injection in your leg to help deliver the placenta. So sometimes it can take, I think it's reasonable for the placenta to take two hours to be delivered if you do it naturally. And that was our preference just to have um, as little intervention as possible within reason, of course. And so when our midwife come to us and said, I really think you need this needle, we didn't think twice about it. And with that, um, we had it, but it wasn't enough to slow the bleeding down. And so following that, that's when we had the the massaging of my uterus and further um, morcentosin, which was put through a drip just to sort that out. And it did. It, it worked quickly, but for a while there, it was quite scary just keeping an eye on things. So I also learned too, so Maxie was, um, and we didn't find out for hours afterwards, the hospital was beautiful and just letting us get over that hemorrhage. And then just, you know, of course, establishing breastfeeding is another good way to help the uterus contract. And so they just let me sit there with her feeding and, you know, sends all those messages that just happen naturally. Um, and so they just left us uninterrupted in the birth suite. And eventually they said, well, we better weigh this baby and just see what happened. And the midwife said, uh, no wonder you've had a hemorrhage. She's 10 pounds, one ounce. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, yeah, big babies can also cause it, I'm told. So, Were there any like ongoing uh, issues for you as a consequence of, of that hemorrhaging? Yeah, I think once I come down the high, you know, all of that adrenaline after I, I had Maxie and I guess I felt like a bit of a warrior having given birth myself to a really big baby. Um once that adrenaline run out and I guess the exhaustion set in, I think the only way I could describe myself in those days following that was a bit of a space cadet. I struggled to hold conversations with people. I was really teary, but from what I was hearing of friends describing those early, you know, three-day, five-day blues, and this was well beyond the first week of having had Maxi. I was really emotional and over nothing things, you know. Um, and it got to a point where during the day I had sent my husband a message and just said, I really think I need to go and get checked out at the doctor's because something is not right. And I had no iron stores at all. And so we started with um, iron injections just in my lower back once a week for six weeks. And it had improved, but my symptoms were still of concern. And so we did another six weeks and there on in, I felt so much better, but just the lethargy and it was the most, I've never felt exhaustion like it. Like it was my whole body. It was brain fog. It was lack of concentration. I wasn't remembering, you know, did I turn the washing machine on? Did I not? Did I turn the oven off? Did I not? And quite often I hadn't turned the oven off. You know, it was, and you know, that's a safety issue that I think is what got me. And of course, having Maxie, you know, wanting to protect her. Uh, so that was a big factor in me really making sure I got checked out at the doctors and got the help that I needed. And, and that iron loss was directly related, I presume, to the blood loss. Yes. The problem was, though, quite often uh, hospitals can measure how much you lose. Uh, I didn't realise they've got a fine art as to weighing, you know, they've got the special mats that they put on the bed for you and they know how much they weigh. And so it's very easy for them to then go and weigh how much it is to discover how much a woman has lost. And because my hemorrhage happened on the toilet, they had to go by my symptoms afterwards. And so I think my heart rate was something crazy. I, I'm pretty sure it was close to 160 beats a minute. And having looked at that afterwards, that was when they worked out it would have been close to two litres of blood loss. But it wasn't written 
in because they didn't have a, an exact measurement. And so when my GP got my birth notes, he said, look, nothing here is written that you lost a lot of blood. I'm saying I, I did, you know, so once we worked through that and then he saw the information about my heart rate, he went, oh, no, it was definitely two litres then. I said, okay, and then I could get the help I needed. But, yes, he could see that direct link with the hemorrhage to the iron issues there. And so once you had the iron supplements over that 12-week period, you came yep. back to normal. Did you feel like oh, Gemma, so Gemma relived? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And even, you know, uh, Maxie was a good sleeper. Pretty well from eight weeks she slept through the night. And by the, through sleeping through the night, I mean she went to bed at seven and woke up at seven. So she had a nice solid seven hour, uh, 12 hours, as did I some nights. But I wasn't waking up feeling like I had only had two hours sleep. I woke up feeling rested and ready to have a day as opposed to beforehand where I just struggled to lift my head off the pillow. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. And then that was followed, I understand, fairly quickly by another pregnancy. Well, as I said, she slept very well and we knew that we wanted more children and we knew that we didn't want too much of an age gap. And so I was still breastfeeding and I'd said to Shane, well, you know, sometimes it can take a while if you're breastfeeding. So we decided that we'd just throw caution to the wind and see what happened. And not long after, I thought I think I might be pregnant. And at the time, Shane was on night shift and he had, I, and again, my energy levels had dropped and I'm thinking, oh, I hope my iron hasn't, you know, dropped off again. And this particular morning, he had come home and got Maxie up. And, you know, so he got gets home when he's on night shift between 6.30 and 7 and got maxed up. I hadn't heard a thing. And I thought, oh, something is not right. And I had some pregnancy tests left over and thought, oh, I'll just do it, but it'll be negative. And I walked out and said to Shane, oh, we're going to need another cot. <laughs> and with that, um, when, when he works night shift, once he's ready for bed, you know, he's a zombie. There's just no talking to him. And he said, oh, okay, congratulations, we're having another baby, I'm going to bed, and handed me Maxie and took himself off to bed. <laughs> I'm standing in the living room looking at my six-month-old thinking, oh, my goodness, nine months' time, I'm going to have another one. <laughs> and so that began our pregnancy with Zach. Fabulous. So then, Zach, I presume your pregnancy with Zach was, um, what's the term, probably a little concerned or worried about the potential of another hemorrhage because when you've had one hemorrhage the chance of you having another is so much higher so did that did that really ruin your second pregnancy by just with anxiety or stress I was so busy with Maxie it didn't ruin it but it was certainly something I was concerned about and put a lot of thought into 
And so we're really fortunate up here in Gladstone at the base hospital. We've got a midwifery group practice program. And so I had the same midwife again all the way through with my pregnancy with Zach. She was actually the first person I texted after I told Shane and I said, I'm pregnant, book me in for January next year. Um, and as I said to Shane that I was doing, he said, leave her alone. It's a Saturday. And she replied and said, I'm glad that you told me you got my last spot for January. So I'm glad I did that. Um, and she booked me in really early for an appointment, uh, because she had thought maybe that hemorrhage would be of concern. And that was the first thing I brought up with her. And so she was very calming and very reassuring, but we did talk about our plan. Should I start to show signs of hemorrhaging? at just about every single antenatal appointment because I was so concerned. So we move forward to the actual birth of Zach. Um, and this again was in the Gladstone Hospital with your wonderful midwife. And could you walk me through what happened? Because this uh, experience is certainly something that no parent wants to have occur. Um, what happened? No, no. So um, I was 37 weeks and five days and Zach was measuring quite large and I had had a growth scan and they thought perhaps I had gestational diabetes and I had done a week of sugar testing from home, all of which come back fine. In the ultrasound, they thought perhaps his stomach was quite enlarged, but then so that could indicate gestational diabetes because the placenta doesn't regulate how much sugar is going to the baby and all of it goes through and then all of it ends up in the stomach of the baby. And so in saying that, though, sometimes these ultrasounds can be difficult to do because, you know, this baby's so big in such a tiny space now. So I did the home sugar testing and my midwife shared the, those results with the specialist in the hospital and he said, well, no, those results are perfect. So I don't think she's got gestational diabetes, but perhaps just another big baby. And I didn't want to know any of their predicted sizes. I didn't know with Maxie that she was going to be 10 pound one and I had no issues in birthing her. So I thought, well, ignorance is bliss second time round. So when again, <laughs> um, and so they were talking about induction though, and I was incredibly uncomfortable with Zach. I had, it's called symphysis pubis dysfunction or SPD. And so walking, moving, anything, I had to wear a, a belt around my pelvis just to basically hold me together. The pain was just excruciating. And so I was quite keen for that to be over. And so knew that a discussion about a medical induction would be coming. And so I started a few natural things at home using some um, clary sage essential oil. And I'd been to acupuncture as well that day. Uh, my sister had arrived from Brisbane to be our second set of hands with Maxie. And Shane had an unplanned two weeks off work and thought, well, now's the time to have a baby. So I had the acupuncture and she said, now it doesn't happen quickly. So just go home and relax. Please don't think you'll be having a baby this afternoon. And I left there and went to get coffee. And as I stood up out of the car to get coffee, I felt my waters break. <laughs> and I thought, well, she said it wouldn't happen quick, but it did. <laughs> and um, nothing too serious, though. It wasn't, you know, like the movies where it was a huge gush. It was just a bit of a strange popping feeling. Wanted to get coffee. And I figured if I wanted coffee still, I didn't need to rush home. Um, so come home and I actually kept it to myself for quite a few hours because I thought maybe it wasn't the real thing. 
Um, but then felt contractions starting. So because my sister was here, I just actually texted Shane saying my waters are broken and a few things are happening, but nothing too serious. And our midwife was really good about wanting us to stay home for as long as we could. You know, quite often women get to hospital and everything stops. And so I was eager just to stay home. But because of the way MGP is set up, she's on call. And so I didn't want things to all of a sudden happen at seven o'clock and have her had work the whole day and have to stay or whatever. So I just phoned her and she said, look, just come up and let us see if it is amniotic fluid. And if it is, we can decide what we do. So my waters had broken, but she was happy for us to come back home. And I wanted to come back home to Maxie knowing that we were really going to be having a baby soon just to savor those last few hours with her. So we come back home, we had dinner with her. I was a blubbering mess, putting her to bed, thinking, well, I'm either going to have a baby tonight or it's going to happen tomorrow. And this is my last night putting you to bed where it's just you Nothing happened that night, but every time I moved in bed, Shane jumped thinking I was having a baby in bed. And so once we woke up in the morning, I said to him, I'm going to let them break my waters properly now. And we're having a baby today. I just, I, cause you could, I could have gone for a number of days. Um, that's not what I wanted. We were both so tired. And so I got to the hospital and just said to the midwife, I'm having a baby today and you need to make that happen. And so she broke my waters and um, as a precaution for the hemorrhage, I had a cannula inserted so that if anything did start, the drip could be started straight away. And we didn't have to muck around with trying to find a vein in the stress of a hemorrhage, if that makes sense. So I felt really reassured because she was doing exactly what she said she would do. She had told me in the lead up that one of the specialists would come in and talk to me about it. And he did, and he was very calming and very respectful. Uh, He was another very gentle cheerleader telling me, you know, I've seen all of your notes. I see that you had your daughter and she was a beautiful big baby and you needed no stitches, so this will be fine again and you can have another big baby, it's fine. Um, My labour with Zach was a lot quicker than Maxie's though. So Maxie was 27 hours. He was about three. And that can be a good thing, but it can also pose a lot of problems. And so having a slower labour gives the baby's body a big dose of hormones that tells them to expel fluid off their lungs, which Zach never got. And so when he was born, he was grey, he was limp, and there was a weird gurgling sound about him, which had me worried. I was begging for him to cry. And I remember my midwife saying, it's all right, it's all right. We still didn't know what he was at that point. Um, Shane had caught him. He caught both of the kids when they were born and helped them up onto my chest. And I said to him when he was crying, I said, is it a boy? And he said, I haven't seen yet. And I, you know, thought, oh, you must have been crying because it's a boy. And then with that, they rolled Zach over and my midwife said, oh, oh my gosh, what's that? And with that, Shane exclaimed, it's a boy. Now, following that though, everything went really pear-shaped. He was very quickly whisked off my chest onto the recess table and I started to hemorrhage. So he's a boy and then they say, oh my, and then he was whisked off the resuscitator. So does that mean that he wasn't breathing? He was struggling to breathe and working really hard at breathing. And so Shane described it. I didn't see it because I was hemorrhaging, so I couldn't sort of be there with him. But Shane said, you know how people do the worm when they're dancing? Like 
his torso, not just his chest, but his whole torso was wriggling and just working super hard at breathing. And so I know when they do that APGAR scale when they're born, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's scale of one to 10, um, nine and 10 is excellent. He was two at birth and then they do it again. So at one minute, sorry, they do it. And then at five minutes they do it. And he was four at five minutes, which is still not good. Some babies can go from two to them being 10 and everything's rosy. So, you know, they just need a bit of time to learn how to be earthside. But Zach wasn't good. And so they moved him. Um, there's a makeshift at the time. There's now an established uh, neonatal intensive care unit in Gladstone. But at the time, it was still being developed. And so they whisked him down there just to get him hooked up to a CPAP machine, which provided pressure to his lungs to keep them open. And so that was all happening down there. Shane was with him while... I had another team of people working on me to stop me from hemorrhaging again. And what was that team doing? I understand there was almost 18 people. Yes, so there was 18 in the room before they took Zach away. So there were people working on me. There were people working on Zach. Poor Shane kept yo-yoing from being right beside me to feeling like he was in the way. So then he would go and stand at the doorway, but then that would freak me out. So I'd be screaming for him. Um, and so it, then the midwives were so good. They were really firm with him and said, stand there, don't move until we tell you to. I think he was conscious of being in the way. And they said, we will tell you if you need to move, but right now she needs you right there. And he was good. I think, you know, when you're in those moments of stress and you need someone just to be that really serious down the line person. And he didn't move until they said, we're taking the baby now. And I said to Shane, go with him and stay with him. Don't leave his side. And again, I think that really firm direction was just what he needed. Oh, wow. I'm tearing up just thinking about that little baby with your husband, Shane. So let's continue. If you could tell the story further about you're there with this team of, of medical experts and they're trying to stop the hemorrhaging and Shane and, and Zach have been whisked off to um, get emergency care. Yeah. What happened with you there? Do you remember that next period? I remember hearing my midwife's tone change. She is the calmest, coolest cucumber you'll come across. However, when she needs you to listen and stop, or even when you're in the throes of labor and she needs you to not push so that your body can do its thing, everything about her changes, but it's in a good way that you have to listen. And so again, I was starting to really lose my cool and her I guess her game face comes on and she calmed me right down. And there was nothing warm and fuzzy about her, but again, it pulled me out of my stress and she calmed me down. She talked me through each of the steps that they were taking to stop the hemorrhage. A doctor had come in to do compressions and massaging my uterus to stop everything. I'm told that they gave me every drug they could to stop it. Although in this hemorrhage with Zach, I only lost 650 mils. It was a fast 650 mils. So I think they had to pull out all the stops. And so soon after I stabilised, Shane walked back in the room. Now I had no frame of reference for what happened with with sick babies. I, you know, I was churned. I knew that they were big. I thought big lungs, healthy lungs, big baby, we're fine. And I looked at Shane's face and I said, we're going to Brisbane, aren't we? Now I, I don't know why I thought that. I, I just... And he, I know he has said to me since I had walked back up the hallway to tell you that they were talking about taking him to Brisbane and he didn't know how to tell me. 
but I had said it like just straight up. I said, we're going to Brisbane, aren't we? And he just, he just nodded. That was all he said he could do. He looked terrified. Um, and so soon after I could get wheeled down to CZAC. So then there was toing and froing about me and I heard people saying, no, no, she can't fly. She's had an epidural, which I hadn't had. And then at one point the obstetrician had come in to check on me and I held his hands and I said, you need to look at me and listen to me. I said, they're saying I can't fly because I've had an epidural. I said, that's not true. I said, I haven't had an epidural. I said, you need to make it clear. I said, if that's the reason that I can't get on a plane with this baby, I'm being ripped off. I said, I need to know that I've got every chance. And so he went and made sure that that side of things was tidied up. Um, and then it was established that Zach would be travelling on a Neo rescue plane with a crew. So I believe it's an RFDS plane that is sent up with a Neo rescue team from the hospital in Brisbane as well. And so there's flight nurses, there's the pilot with RFDS as well as extra staff from Brisbane. But they said because of the size of the aircraft and everyone else coming for Zach, I wouldn't be on that plane with him. And so the only options for me were to either be transferred as a patient, but because I had stabilised, I wasn't a priority. And so they wouldn't be sending a plane to Gladstone just for me. So it was sort of hanging in the balance that someone else in Gladstone might need a, a, a flight to Brisbane and that no one else would and I could have the spare bed on the plane. And so I had just resigned myself to thinking, okay, I'll spend tonight in Gladstone Zach will go and then in the morning I can get a commercial flight to Brisbane. And I just decided as a, I guess, a protective mechanism for me, the thought of being separated from my baby just was gut-wrenching. I thought, well, I'm just going to have to ignore everything else I hear because there was lots of toing and froing. Yes, you're going. No, you're not. No, you're definitely not going. No, you definitely won't. And it was just, I just couldn't keep, keep up. But like I said, that thought of being separated from him was just too much. So I shut down and then all of a sudden there was a new NICU nurse working with Zach and the phone rang in the NICU in Gladstone and she said, yes, yeah, she's ready to go. And she's saying, yes, yes. And I'm only getting one end of her conversation. She's saying, she's in the wheelchair now. Her bag is packed. And I thought, oh, she must be thinking about someone else or talking about someone else. And she hung up and she looked at me. She said, there's a plane waiting for you. You're going to Brisbane tonight. She said, you're going to, meet your, you're going to beat your baby to Brisbane. And so another gentleman happened to be needed transporting to Brisbane and I got the spare bed in his plane. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank goodness, because I just couldn't fathom the idea of not being with him. So you were on that plane and uh, with another patient yes. and you were flown to Brisbane. What was that experience like? Have you ever been on a plane like an RFDS plane before? Never, never, not an RFDS plane. And so I was explained it's essentially, once I did find out I was travelling, I was then worried because so I was already at risk of having a hemorrhage he was a bigger baby. Although I had stabilised, I've learned once you've had a hemorrhage in those early hours of postpartum, you're at a higher risk in those first 12 weeks again. And so when I left the hospital with Maxi, I was given the full rundown. Even if you think for one second that you're having a you phone triple O straight away, you know, I was given a very strict outline. And so I'm thinking, I can't fly. Like I was given my golden ticket to fly. I'm thinking, no, I can't do this. What have I hemorrhage? And Again, they said to me, no, no, those planes are ICU on wings. 
And so you will be fine. If it happens, you will be fine. And they said, look, we, we would be surprised if it happens, but if it does, everything is there that you need. And so that was so comforting. And with that, I just didn't even think twice. Um, again, with my, you know, the my instable pelvis and everything, the separation there, getting onto the bed in the plane, although it's an ICU on wheels, they're not big planes. And so moving around was really difficult. And I remember the nurse said, I will help you, but you have to get onto this bed yourself if you're wanting to fly. And I could get on, but I needed her to pick my legs up for me and just spin me around into this bed. And she was just beautiful, like just so helpful and so understanding. Um, Yeah, she was just magic. I really can't thank her enough because I was also needing ultimate distraction that I had just given birth. I wasn't with my baby. I'm on a plane. (laughs) Like, so not the way I thought that this whole experience would go. And we just chatted about the most random things. You know, as you fly in and out of Gladstone, you can see a big red mud dam from all the industry in Gladstone. And she struck up a conversation about that, thank goodness, because it was so distracting at the time. And that led to talking about Shane's work and she had actually never flown into Gladstone before, despite having worked for RFDS for the longest time. And so, you know, we chatted about all of that. And so it was beautifully distracting in those moments because I really needed that, I guess, mindless chatting just to keep me distracted from what was really happening. And it was just what I needed from that flight nurse. That's great. So you arrive in Brisbane and you're ahead of Zach. Yeah. When did you actually see Zach again? When did you see him? So because I had hemorrhaged, once I got transported from Brisbane Airport into the Royal Women's in Brisbane, I just had to get checked out by maternity. But again, that um, chewed up a lot of the time while I was waiting for Zach to get there because I think he was roughly an hour behind me, which I guess in those, those hours feel like days. And so it was wonderful. I got checked out. There was a beautiful midwife who made sure I was settled into a ward. Initially, they had me in a ward with women who all had their babies, which was my worst nightmare. And I was, you know, now I can say I was so happy for those women to have their babies. But in the moment, I was so angry with them for having their babies close to them. And the midwife, I remember saying to someone, no, 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 Gemma cannot go into this ward with these mothers. That's that's not okay. And all of these babies were actually under the lights because they had uh, jaundice. And the other person said, oh, that's okay. She'll have an eye mask. And the midwife said, she's just been flown in from Gladstone. She's got nothing. Get her a quiet ward with no one on it. (laughs) And with that, they whisked me down to, no. it was a dark, quiet ward with no one in it. And so this beautiful midwife got me settled and she said, well, I've just had a phone call your baby boys all settled in upstairs. And so she took me up to the NICU. So I was probably, say, maybe five hours between leaving Gladstone and then seeing him again in Brisbane. What did he look like? He was pink, which was really encouraging considering I remember looking at him in the whirlwind of everything soon after he was born thinking, you're grey. So that was good that he looked pink. Oh, that's fabulous. So let's shoot forward now. How's Zach today? So he is... He is so cheeky. He's a chatterbox. He loves planes, ironically. (laughs) Uh, He stands in the backyard and waves to planes that we see fly over our house. Um, Both of the children have decided that small planes that we see fly over are the Royal Flying Doctor (laughs) and give them big waves. Uh, He's just buckets of fun. 
is just so fun. A personal question, Gemma, is there plans for a third child? Our family's complete. <laughs> I had to laugh actually. In that moment when I did see him in the NICU, I was crying and the NICU nurse sort of said, you know, it's normal to be upset when you see them for the first time and da-da-da. And I said, oh, I'm not crying because of that. And she said, well, why else would you be crying right now? <laughs> and the words just escaped her mouth and the midwife looked at her. I said, oh, I'm crying because our family's complete. And she was actually pregnant and she said, oh, that's the best word. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And she said, oh, you hear women say, oh, I'm done. We're done. No more. No way. She said, but you've used the nicest word. And I said, oh, yeah, we're complete. And the midwife said to me, now, don't say that to your husband too soon, will you? (laughs) And I sat on it and sat on it. And then it was Dax's first breastfeed in special care. And I was crying. And Shane said to me, are you crying because you're overwhelmed? And I looked at him. I said, no, I'm crying because our family's complete. And then we were both a wreck crying in special care. And yeah, we just knew then that our family was complete. I think though, one of my big things, you know, you often settle down after the hype of birth and, you know, rethink things. But when we've both spoken about that decision since, in the both times that I did hemorrhage, Shane thought I was going to die. Like they're scary situations to be in. And like I've said, you know, you have one hemorrhage, you're at high risk for another one. You have big babies. You know, Zach was £9.5 at not even 38 weeks. And so I don't think we're ever going to have small babies. And so I think, you know, you quit while you're ahead. We've got two healthy kids. Despite things being scary with Zach's arrival, we were so well looked after by RFDS, by the NICU, by Gladstone Hospital. Yeah, you quit while you're ahead. Thank you so much, Gemma. It's just been wonderful to be able to talk to you today and and hear about this adventure. And I'm so happy that Maxie and Zach and you and Shane are complete. Yeah, thank you. So we were thrilled. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.